a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. Comic Book Time Machine, Episode 90, part of Ben's Marvel's Cosmic Comic Series, looking at Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy comics cover date, September 1978. Hello and welcome to another episode of the comic book Time Machines Marvel Cosmic Comics special series that really isn't a special series. It's the main series right now, but that's another story for another time. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and I'm here to talk about Marvel's science fiction comic books that they were publishing from 1977 to 1986, which was the time period where they were publishing Star Wars, the Star Wars comic. And to start with, I've been told, don't apologize in podcasting. There's no apologizing in podcasting, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, there's been a long gap. Actually, I'm going to apologize for a couple things, starting with this long gap between podcasts. Uh, basically, what you can know is for the comic book time machine, if there is a long period of time where there is no episode coming, from from me anyway, um, you can be... Uh, pretty sure that means I'm busy. And usually it's a good kind of busy. Uh, This summer has been a good kind of busy, a regular kind of busy, and also a bad kind of busy. Uh, The good kind of busy has come from a lot of writing that I've been doing. Uh, The regular kind of busy has just been, it's summer, and... (laughs) And then the bad kind of busy has been a handful of family emergencies. And so um, I'm here recording this now. Why? Well, because I finished a a nice handful, actually, of major writing projects. And uh, I wish I had time to do a podcast about every single thing that I read this summer that influenced the things that I was writing, especially when you consider that a lot of the things that I write are actually adaptations of um, Bible stories and how those adaptations that I wrote have been influenced by, I think I've mentioned the Ronin influence, but also um, Watchmen and uh, the old EC comics, uh, especially some some classic ones, and uh, <laughs> Rashomon, a, a movie that, that uh, I was watching that, and the way that the characters were addressing uh, judge in that movie as if they were witnessing to the judge, but they actually were looking at the viewer and uh, I, I used that. Anyway, all that to say, got a lot of writing done. It was great, a lot of fun. I I still write in my free time, but my evening free time tends to be, you know, a couple times a week goes toward podcasting. And so I haven't had a lot of evening free time because I've been spending just a lot of hours researching and writing. Um, the other thing uh, I kind of want to apologize for is if you hear my fan, it is hot, man. I am podcasting in a way that I've never, ever podcasted before because uh, it's just so hot in this house, uh, the house being my own. Uh, I decided I'm not I'm not going to sit in my office. I'm sitting in my living room. 
near a window with a fan and I'm using a different microphone. Um, and so it's just kind of a different setup for me anyway. And so if, if things sound different or weird, well, that's one of the reasons why. Um, also, another reason might be just because I'm different and, and weird. But uh, that's, a, that's another topic for another time for another place. Uh, let's see. There's one other thing I was going to apologize about. But, oh, my voice. I, I don't need to apologize about that. I hope I don't need to apologize about that. <laughs> but um, Sore throat, you know, but I, I want to podcast about Star Wars, man. I've been reading. Uh, and I can't wait to, to, to talk about this episode, this issue uh, of Star Wars. There's uh, looking at the slip that I have here of what's coming up also this month. It's a smaller month. Godzilla, Human Fly, Star Wars. There's no man from Atlantis. Uh, there's John Carter. There's a John Carter Warlord of Mars annual that'll come at the end of the coverage. Um, but for now, I just want to talk about some Star Wars. So let's let's get it started, shall we? Star Wars issue number 15 is titled Star Duel. And on the cover, we see uh, Han Solo shooting it out with some space pirates outside of a space pirate star destroyer. And it says, at last, Han Solo's showdown with Crimson Jack. This issue would have gone for 35 cents if you had bought it from the spinner rack like I did when I went back in time to pick up these comic books. And it's, I guess the question is, was it worth the time and energy to well, run a time machine to go back in time. I mean, you, you, once you run the time machine and you're looking at a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, in taxpayers' money to do so, but at the same time, uh, you, you're, you're spending only 35 cents on a comic book. So, I mean, you're saving money there. So that's, that's, that's not too shabby. That's not too bad. But, uh, yeah, this, this comic book was written by Archie Goodwin, who also served as the editor. The artists are Carmine Infantino and Terry Austin, uh, John Costanza is the letterer, Janice Cohen is the colorist, and Jim Shooter is consulting editor, which is nice. You know, the, the writer-editor thing is an interesting thing, and it's, some, it's actually a role that I've played in some of my own writing where um, there is no other editor that, other than, than me. Uh, <laughs> there's been a couple times where I didn't realize that. I turned in a script, and yeah, it, it went uh, straight from me to the artist to the letterer, and I got back the the pages and I'm, I'm looking through them and I'm like, Oh, there's a typo here and there's a typo here. And then I think, okay, well, what were they doing that there's all these typos until I looked at the script that I sent and realized, Oh, I sent a script that had those typos in it. And those typos were not found by anyone except me until it was almost too late. I did manage to catch those uh, on that, but that's actually happened a couple times with one of my publishers. Uh, anyway, it's always good to have another editor, and, and so I'm glad that Jim Shooter was, was working here as the consulting editor. And I'm not sure exactly how the relationship worked um, between all of these people, but uh, Archie Goodwin as the writer-editor, uh, that, that gives him the opportunity to have a lot more control over what the story looks like and how it, how it plays out. And this story, uh, I mean, let's just jump right into it. It picks up right after... The last issue, and the last issue, issue fourteen, is what wrapped up the the Waterworld War, as far as um, where Luke had crash landed as he was looking for a new place to put the Rebel base. And now that I think of it, um, you know, Princess Leia took off after him, 
I don't know what the Rebel Alliance is up to these days. Uh, we've been just spending a lot of time away from them on, on, on these other planets as Han Solo has been doing his adventures and Luke Skywalker has been having to get rescued on this water world and, and Princess Leia was going after Luke. And yeah, maybe, maybe soon we'll find out what the Rebel Alliance has been up to as well. But in this issue, the wrap-up for that water world storyline is, is done. But there's still some loose ends, and, and one loose end is that hanging around outside of the water world is this giant Star Destroyer that was taken over by Crimson Jack and his uh, band of, of pirates, which includes a young lady named Jolly. Or Jolly. Uh, she wears a beret, she has pink hair, and she wears a skimpy outfit. Clearly, you know, she's a space pirate, and... <laughs> She also has a real, real problem with Han Solo because he's made her think about things that she just never thought she could think about as far as love and, and men. Because we find out she has a pretty tragic backstory. I mean, her backstory rivals anything Dr. Doofenshmirtz would have in line of, uh, of a tragic backstory. But um, she's, she grew up on a, just a brutal world. And they were attacked uh, by by Imperials, and her father uh, left her mother and her to burn, uh, just to die on a on this world. And so her her mother died as well. But Jolie or Jolly, I don't know why I say Jolie. Is Angelina Jolie or something like that? I don't know. But um, Jolly survived, and she was. It says. She lived to become a man-hater and space pirate, ever ready to prove that she's, quote, good enough, because her father's last words to her mother was, forget it, you're not good enough, because he wasn't going to fight for them or stay with them. So the other uh, primary character who's outside of our main cast of Princess Leia, Luke Skywalker, C-3PO, R2-D2, Han Solo, Chewbacca, is, uh, as I mentioned before, Crimson Jack. He's a pirate, and uh, basically it all comes down to this. Han Solo is on the world, this water world because he tricked Crimson Jack to bringing him, Chewbacca, and Princess Leia there. And because they, they knew that Luke was there, and they needed to find Luke and, and help him. So Crimson Jack has waited for them while they were down on the planet uh, helping win a war uh, for the, uh, I guess they're not the indigenous uh, inhabitants, but for the current inhabitants. The, the war is done now, and they're kind of waiting because they know Crimson Jack is up above waiting for them. And also waiting for them is Jolly, who she's has she has confused feelings about Han Solo. She witnessed a kiss with Princess Leia and Han Solo. And I, I just have to say, uh, Jolly, as a character, there's a lot to talk about. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, gender politics that really, maybe not gender politics, maybe it's just, uh, well, it's, this is not um, a comic book that any feminist is going to wave and say, look, female role models. Um, Princess Leia, she's still a, a pretty, pretty good role model of someone who acts and someone who pushes people into action. And it's not just uh, I'm pushing you into action because I've been captured. Although I mean that does happen with her and, and did happen with her. But here she's, uh, I would say, a, a strong, feminine, feminist role model. Uh, 
Jolly, not so much. <laughs> she's she's not. Uh, yeah, there's a lot that they could have done with her that they just plain did not do. Uh, we spent a couple pages in this issue uh, just recapping what happened last time around, last issue. And then um, the team gets in the Millennium Falcon because, you know what? There's There's no reason to wait. Let's just go. Crimson Jack is up there and we've got some plans. So they fly up. Jolly's flying around in uh, a Y-Wing, which is kind of cool to see. And there's some TIE fighters that are coming after them that are also uh, space pirates. And basically, there's no way that that our team is going to get out of here, especially on the hunk of junk that is called the Millennium Falcon. But, you know, Han Solo always has a, a card up his sleeve, even when he's wearing short sleeves. I mean, he's not actually, he's wearing long sleeves now, but if he was wearing short sleeves, he would have a card up his sleeve and he's got a trick. And basically the trick is this, that if he kills them, if he destroys the Millennium Falcon, Crimson Jack will also destroy the navigation tapes that they need to be able to make the jump to hyperspace and, and navigate the galaxy. That's something that any self-respecting space pirate is going to need. And so they are going to bargain. They um, Originally, that, uh, Han Solo was going to use that as a bargain uh, to get back his treasure, which Crimson Jack stole from him, yeah, as space pirates do. But now it's you know for their, their lives to, to get home. So while they're buying time and also making this bargain, there is one thing going on here that I found so neat that I've seen them do this. Uh, I didn't see that this seems to be the first time. Uh, R2-D2, as an astromech droid, is sent out onto the hull of the Millennium Falcon to do some repairs and stuff. I thought that was really neat to see. Uh, I'm assuming this is the first time. Uh, we did see R2-D2 in the back of the X-Wing uh, as a passenger who's doing some repairs there. But this was this was pretty cool to see. Uh, C-3PO went out too, but they're, they're fixing the ship. So they're going to make a, a handoff. And uh, Han Solo agrees to meet with Crimson Jack out in space within the shields of the Star Destroyer. So they don't have to wear spacesuits. They're just wearing uh, masks and, and jetpacks. And they're going to uh, make a, a handoff. They're going to make, do a trade. The trade is, is also I mean, it's for a, a, a gyro. 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 This is not a sandwich or a, or a wrap, I guess. I never, I don't like gyros, 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 whatever you're supposed to call them. They don't want that. They want a gyro control module because it's been damaged on the Millennium Falcon. And Crimson Jack and his guys, they, they have one. So they're going to go fly out into space and they're going to make a handoff. And this is kind of fun. It's only a couple pages, but basically you have these two tricky tricksters who are trying to go out and they're going to trick each other. And they both bring the thing that the other one needs because they both know that the other one's going to have a micro, um, a micro scanner. And, but they also both bring weapons, even though they both agreed no weapons. Although Crimson Jack seems to act surprised that Han Solo wasn't very honorable. He brought his weapon. Han Solo is totally expecting Crimson Jack to be completely and utterly not 
honorable. But uh, Crimson Jack seems surprised. In fact, there's an exchange that Luke and Han Solo have where Luke says, what if, he's, what if he tries to trick you? What if he's not telling the truth? And Han Solo says, I'll be disappointed if he doesn't try to trick me because that's his nature. And so they fly in close together, and Crimson Jack tries to attack Han Solo. Han Solo grabs the thing that he needs, uh, but Crimson Jack has made the signal to uh, create the vacuum between the Star Destroyer and the Millennium Falcon. Um, and so you get this tense moment where there's a little bit of fighting, and and then this is where Jolly, Jolly just ugh, frustrates me. Uh, she goes in to rescue Han Solo, turns against her people by crashing her ship into the Star Destroyer, and the Star Destroyer is crippled by this, and then Han Solo gets his final showdown with, with Crimson Jack, and honestly, I'm really glad that this final showdown with Crimson Jack plays out the way it does, because I, I wanted to see Han Solo do this fighting, and it gives a, a nice wrap-up to the whole Han Solo story arc starting in issue uh, seven, and but it, uh, the jolly stuff it just doesn't sit well with me, and and maybe it's just a sign of the times. I mean, this is 1978, and we're you know here we are, uh, nearly 40 years later, um, and yeah, you've come a long way, baby. You you really have uh, this kind of story. I don't know if it would have ever worked the way it does here in uh, modern context but uh, it ends with Jolly getting her first and last kiss because her crash ship um, they go they make a, a search through the the wreckage and the debris to and they find Jolly laying there in the wreckage of her ship which is um, inside the Star Destroyer and, and uh, the, the atmosphere is fading and Jolly, the impression that you get, they don't actually say it. They just, they give the impression that she dies here. And they fix the Millennium Falcon and, and then they get out of here. And uh, so, okay, so now we've had these, I, I kind of broke them up into story arcs, but this wraps things up nicely with the Water War, with uh, Han Solo's uh, Magnificent Seven um, adventure, which, by the way, Magnificent Seven remake is coming soon i can't wait i'm very excited to see it but all all told this these 15 issues uh, with the nine original issues have been a lot of fun and next issue is the hunter i don't know much about what it is but i did peek ahead at the cover jackson the space rabbit is on the cover for issue number 16 so we will see what that means and what that's going to look like is he actually there i didn't know there was any more stories with jackson the space rabbit but uh he's coming and i don't know if the hunter's coming for him or what but uh this whole crimson jack thing great uh nice nice storyline goofy costume uh but nice character and all, when all is said and done, I've really, really, really enjoyed reading these issues of, of Star Wars. So, yeah, next up, I'm going to be just biting the bullet and jumping straight in to the human fly. And when I say jumping straight in, apparently I'm doing some ski jumping. So, human fly coming up in the next segment of the Marvel's Cosmic Comics. So, I'm sitting here and... Uh, 
just enjoying some comics. There's a storm outside, and I have to say, I love, I love this kind of weather. You know, some of it comes down to, uh, I think I, it's because I grew up in in Canada, and and just there was more gray weather, there was more cold weather, and um, so I got this storm happening. So if you hear some thunder, that's what's going on outside. But um, I just finished reading my my copy of the Human Fly issue number thirteen, and oh man. Um, I've got some problems with it, and I, I, I've got some issues with it. But, you know, Human Fly has been one of those comics that's been so bad it's good, and so bad it's bad. And every once in a while it'll be bad, and then it's getting, oh, it's worse and worse until it gets around to that point where it's so bad it's good, and then it just wraps itself can, and keeps on going back until it's just so bad it's bad. And uh, there's been some, some moments where it hasn't been like that. And, and this issue here is is not it's not terrible but it's not great and i i really wouldn't say it's recommendable other than if you want to read a human fly comic that's not terrible here's one to pick up this might be the one you want to use as your sampler but um the human fly is you know that real world stunt man and this comic comes straight from the 70s uh that that evil Knievel uh, style of thing where you have the stunt man, and in this case, the human fly, the real guy, was all about doing stunts for charity and helping out children's foundations and stuff like that. So for the comic, the human fly does a stunt where he is going to uh, ski down a mountain um, and break a record, and it's going to make some money for a foundation that is researching um, the regeneration of organs and, and bones and, and that kind of thing. So <laughs> I always like to look for, you know, uh, things I can learn from the comics I read, even not great ones. Uh, not just things that I can learn, but also I like to look for, you know, what the intention of the the author was the intention of of the creator and i'm very forgiving when i can see what the intention is which is one of the reasons why i like movies that are so bad that they're bad is because i'm watching it and i'm trying to see the movie that i'm seeing through the eyes of the creator and and, and same thing with with comic books like this um this this one here i mean we've we've got our team bill mantlow is still the writer uh the editor in chief is jim shooter on this uh, although the editor is Bob Hall. And then we have Frank Robbins doing pencils and Frank Springer doing inks. And um, letters is done by D. Wool and colors is done by G. Rousseau. And they're just – this feels like a a comic where it's trying to be more than it actually can be. Uh, it's trying to rise above cliché. But it uses cliche to get there. And it's trying to say something about human nature, but it just is, it's not quite making the jump. It's not quite making the leap. And it starts out with a splash page of Human Fly going over a cliff on his skis. Turns out it's just a dream. It's a dream that Harmony White is having. Harmony White is a reporter who is trying to expose Human Fly as a fraud. Her boss was the one pushing her to do this. She was going right along with it, but then there's a while where she had crisis of conscience, conscience, 
where she would not, uh, she just couldn't do it, but she still worked for the guy. Then she quit her job and joined Human Fly's team. Human Fly promised that he would get her a job back if it was the last thing he did. And that's kind of the setup that brings us here to this jump to the where he's going to ski down a mountain. And when he gets to the end of the slope, there's a cliff and he has a, a parachute rigged in there. And so there's a lot of things that happen here that just make me very ambivalent about this. Um, Harmony White's old boss is also shooting footage Um Harmony White is one of the people who's helping shoot documentary footage about the jump to help, you know, with 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 the film. They'll be able to sell that or rent it or, or whatever it is, license it out, I guess. But uh, her boss, Mr. Braden, he is going to also shoot his own stuff. And here's where we get a nice little reminder that we are in the 70s. He bugs, he places a bug on their equipment and Human Fly comes and give, brings it back and says... Um, I don't mind you covering my stunt for your station. It's a free country. But I thought bugging went out with Watergate. If you wanted an interview, you might have asked me. And that does not make Mr. Braden very happy. So Braden is actually going to go down on a sled himself because he wants to be the one who exposes Human Fly as a fraud. And he is going to go down alongside Human Fly and <laughs> prove that Human Fly is a fraud on this jump when he doesn't do it and so he it's i i wonder if they're kind of playing up on the evil knievel uh snake uh, snake river canyon jump where the rocket sled thing that he was on uh the, the parachute deployed before it was supposed to and he didn't get to finish the jump over this the Snake River, River Canyon or whatever, Snake Canyon, Snake River Canyon. And there are some people who believe that uh, Evil Knievel activated the parachute because he was afraid that this jump was not going to end well. And he actually then blamed the engineer of the rocket sled for it as a, as a um, malfunction. And it turns out, you know... If he did it, then he was um, committing himself to the lie, I guess you might say. And uh, no one knows if this is true or not. But I'm wondering if that they're kind of playing up on that thing where Braden is going to catch Human Fly in some sort of trick like that. But Human Fly, he's planning on just going down the slope. And when he hits that ravine, he's going to go off the side and activate a parachute. And that's the, that's the gear that we know he has. He also has a radio helmet. Um radio linked helmet that the whole team has and that's going to come in handy later and they're so they climb the mountain to get to the top and there's a little bit of tension because they kind of fall but they all are on the cables you know and they're they're okay they're not going to die obviously we're you know they're not going to fall off the mountain in the middle of the issue and die there's a whole issue to go and these are the characters these are the main characters and this is a marvel comic book geared towards kids that's not going to happen so what is going to happen? Well, <laughs> I I knew I knew it was going to happen as soon as I saw that Braden was going to go down by himself with a camera with the human fly, and I think you probably figured it out too. Uh, the The setup is all there. There is the ravine, there is the cliff, there is human fly's parachute. But guess who's not going to have a parachute? Braden. And guess who's going to go over the edge of the ravine? Unless he gets help from Human Fly, 
Braden. And guess who's going to mess up the stunt for the human fly and make human fly look even better than he would have if he had just done the stunt straight? Braden. And guess who's going to get rescued and then change his mind and change his heart about human fly? Braden. And it all goes down just like that. They go down the mountain together. Everyone's watching and getting scared and getting tense. Braden remembers the the cliff at the very last, last minute, tries to veer away. Uh, can't. He, uh, he ends up spilling out of his sled, but he's still going down. Human Fly's parachute deploys before he goes over the edge. And this is something they set up earlier, too, is that it was going to deploy to slow him down. And then he would go over with the chute having deployed. So he can't get to Braden in time. So this is one thing I wasn't quite expecting. I was expecting them to go over the edge together and he'd have to use the parachute to rescue him. But instead, he gets rid of the parachute and now they have to stop before they go over the edge together. And I'm just thinking, okay, so that's just one more little monkey wrench. So here's another thing that surprised me. They both go over. They go over the edge. Oh, no. I I know that they're going to be okay, but how are they going to get out of this one? And this is something that I hate. I mean, it doesn't turn this into something that's so bad it's good. And it doesn't turn this into something that uh, makes it a bad story necessarily. But... This is one of those things where, surprise, I have one more gimmick up my sleeve. Literally, although not literally up the sleeve, it's on his sleeve. And it's he has um, these pitten guns, and he shoots them, and they, bury the, they, they, they hit the rock, and the, there's a cable attached to them. So they both they go over, kind of, but they, they stop in time. And I hate this. I hate it when they, you know, to up the tension, they have this kind of hidden secret weapon. And I guess maybe I'm more accepting of it if they would say, hey, I've got a secret weapon. And then later on we find out what it is. But this is this is not good storytelling. And so we've got the cliche of the bad guy who gets rescued by the good guy and has a change of heart. Although, I mean... Just a guy running a television station wanting to expose frauds. That's not necessarily a bad guy. In fact, they even call him the J. Jonah Jameson of TV produ- production. But uh, so Braden, he's, he's nice again. Um, one other thing that kind of surprised me, that's just because I forgot the oath that Human Fly gave Harmony White, is um, Braden says, can I make it up to you? And, and Human Fly basically says, well, yeah, you, I've got a friend who could use a job. And... Oh, it's Harmony White, you know. But I just hate it when they bring this, they pop this thing out of nowhere. That it's there's no setup, there was no um, reference to it, and I would have preferred there had not been a weapon. But it was Human Fly using his own skills or abilities, uh, or at least show us, you know, that there's show us beforehand. And and I, I don't know. I guess the idea is. Surprise! You didn't know how they're going to get out of this one, and it just—it just is not. It's lazy storytelling to me. It's—it's it's lazy, so it makes this issue serviceable. It's okay, not great, not horrible, uh, but actually completely forgettable, except for that moment at the end where I just said no. I mean, I didn't say it out loud, but in my mind, I'm like, I'm just saying. 
no, come on. I So I probably will remember that there is that twist ending that they didn't earn. And that'll probably be what I remember out of out of this this particular issue later on. The other thing I'll remember is there is an actual note from the human fly in the letters page, which is called Fly Papers. Here it is. It says, Dear Marvel, I have been reading the many letters that you have been forwarding to me with great interest. I am very pleased about the response to the comic series, but more than that, to the positive reaction from all your readers towards the human fly. It makes me very happy and inspires me a great deal to see the enthusiasm and support I'm getting from Marvel fans. As you may very well know, a short while ago I was injured while attempting to jump 26 buses on a rocket bike in Montreal, Canada. I found myself once again in the hospital bed from where I am writing this letter. This experience in the hospital reminds me of that auto accident of many years ago in Asheville, North Carolina. One would think that this second confinement would discourage me. Quite the contrary. If anything, it is giving me more strength to go ahead with my hopes of becoming the world's greatest philanthropic daredevil. As you know, I want to help other people less fortunate than myself by donating a good portion of my earnings to world research and to charitable charitable organizations. My fans probably don't know this, but as a child, I was exposed to a strong musical background. I have decided that in addition to my daredevil stunts, I will pursue my musical career, which I stopped somewhat after the accident. I've always been interested in rock music. It seemed to me to have the same kind of vitality and uniqueness that I wish to project in my stunts. May I just say that soon you'll be hearing from the Human Fly musically. I'll be going into the recording studio as soon as I am out of the hospital to tape my first album. I hope that my friends out there, in addition to looking for my stunts and TV experiences, will keep their eyes and ears open for the Human Fly rock show. I hope to make people happy with my music as well as my daredevil feats. And as with my stunts, a good part of any money I earn through my music will be turned over to charitable organizations in whatever cities I perform. Best regards to everyone, the human fly. And yeah, human fly with his own letter to his own magazine. And, you know, this guy, I I don't know a lot about him, Rick Rojet, but honestly, man... He seems like a really interesting fellow, and I would love to meet him one day. I can't remember if he's dead or alive at this point in time, so I don't know if that's possible. But the letters uh, talk about some of the same issues that they always talk about. Um, Human Fly not being a crime fighter, but you can find ways to give him adventures and and that kind of thing. But uh, it, you know, I, I just. They they try, and when I say they, I'm talking about Bill Mantlo and and then possibly Bob Hall. They they try to make this something that's not just a cliche. They do succeed in that the bad guy is not a supervillain. The bad guy is the guy who needs to get rescued who causes the the stunt to be you know to not go off the way it's supposed to go. And Harmony White narrates the whole thing, and she does try and give it a little bit of a philosophical uh, bent. She continue continually talks about how um, the human fly is someone who believes in people, and her boss Braden is someone who doesn't believe in anyone. And it comes up a couple different times. It just it, it's meant to be a theme. They state it as a theme, but 
truthfully, it doesn't play out as a theme. If, honestly, there is a theme here, it's um, you should help people even if they're your enemy, which isn't a bad theme. It's just not very sophisticated, and it doesn't play out in a very sophisticated way. And, you know, I've written stuff about, you know, helping your neighbor or, uh, you know, helping your enemy or, you know, reaching out to people who are different and those kind of things. Uh, but <laughs> this is trying to do more. It, it, it's reach. Oh, I can't remember the phrase. It's reach overextends its grasp or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I... I would like to see some more of the ridiculousness in the past, but then again, that ridiculousness, it's very difficult to to do that right. And when I say it's difficult to do that right, I mean it's difficult for human fly to do it right. So, uh, yeah. So that's uh, the uh, death slope. And uh, next up in, in our reading, uh, I'll be looking at Godzilla... Issue number 14. So that'll be in the next segment here of Marvel's Cosmic Comics. So Godzilla, king of monsters, as you see on the cover, because Godzilla's head covers the 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 and the king of the monsters. Issue number 14. It's from Toho Productions' famed movie series and this cover gives us a pretty dramatic dramatic thing i mean we already mentioned that on the cover it says red ronin is finished now godzilla must alone face the siege of the super beasts and on the cover is the head of red ronin on the ground and poor little rob takaguchi he's hanging out of the eyeball socket of red ronin and um, there's Godzilla fighting a beast in the background while Dum Dum Dugan is pointing dramatically at the because basically you know anyone else standing there would not think to look and got you know Dum Dum Dugan he needs to point your attention there and yeah and Godzilla's looking really lean in that cover image but anyway it's it's a dramatic one so <laughs> uh there's a lot going on and but it's not cluttered and it's not uh, i mean the line work is clean and it's just it's a decent cover it's a it's a really decent cover and honestly if i was just seeing this on the stands um and it wasn't godzilla maybe it was some other creature in the title role i i'd be interested i'd i'd be interested the writer is doug mensch and the penciler is heard trimpy and the anchor Daniel Green, the letterer is Shelley Lefferman, and the colorist is Don Don Warfield. Jim Shooter, editor in chief, Bob Hall, once again coming in as the editor of the book. So, um, good good for you, Bob Hall. Good for you. That's that's two this month, and in just the licensed books alone. Who knows what else he was doing this month in in other areas, but. Cover price thirty five cents, like most of these issues uh, that we are we are getting into this month. Uh, on sale date was June sixth, nineteen seventy eight. Cover date September nineteen seventy eight. And yeah, I think we should just jump right into it because we are in the middle of uh, well, it's a trilogy, so we're not even in the middle of it. This is the third part, and 
you know, previously Godzilla was called upon to fight monsters. And I know that usually happens in a Godzilla movie when there's more than one monster. Although sometimes he ends up fighting man. And we find out that perhaps man is the actual monster after all. Not in this case. In this case, it's aliens that are the monsters. And the aliens also have monsters that do their fighting for them. They send these monsters to Earth. Earth is basically going to die unless something's done about these monsters. And Godzilla has to fight them. And there's three of them. And they've already taken out Red Ronin. As I said, his head is lying on the ground. And uh, the pilot of Red Ronin, Rob Takaguchi, hanging out of the eye socket hole. Which, uh, it was more dramatic last issue when it happened. Um, But, you know, this issue... It's not. It looks less uncomfortable. Let's put it that way, and and less deadly. Where in the last issue he was just hanging from the eye socket, like his whole body is hanging out of the eye socket. In this one, his body is more leaning out of the eye socket, and he's on the ground with his legs still in the eye instead of hanging. Um, it's it doesn't really matter. Uh, I don't think that this was an intentional softening of things, although that visual of him hanging out of that eye socket is pretty pretty wild. So, yeah, let's get into this. Let's get into the story here. Now, you probably remember, maybe you remember, I don't know. If you're, I'm going to remind you if you remember or not, uh, last last issue, the we had this battle between the Badens and the Megans, uh, Mega in... Uh, I think I finally realized in reading this issue, it's not meant to be like Megan, but it's like Mega with an N at the end and Beta with an N at the end. So Megans and Badens, they, they've been having this war. They've been fighting with monsters and the two groups of aliens that are near the Earth, uh, basically um, they're doomed. The Megans are dead. The Badens are not dead, but they are slowly dying. And I'm just going to say, um, uh, painful death seems to be a theme in this issue. Uh, the Badens, it's horrifying when you realize what's going on. Their air is being slowly drained from their moon base. And they are basically just biding their time until they suffocate and one by one they're going down dying waiting to see am i going to be you know is our is our monster godzilla because that's their champion on on earth that they've chosen to fight the other monsters will godzilla survive and of course you know the answer of course i know the answer the question is how and, you know, in a movie, actually, it would be possible for Godzilla to die at the end because in the movies, they they do tend to do a turnaround and they you can kill off Godzilla. You can kill off Godzilla's twin brother. You can, you know, because that's you got to bring him back somehow. And then the next time around, you just bring him back because, you know what, we thought he was dead, but he wasn't. And then the next time around, it's a reboot. And then, you know, they can do that in the, the movies where they're not worrying about continuity. And then when they start worrying about continuity, 
you just wait for the final one or something, you know. But in this case here, he can't die. Not if the book is going to continue. But the question is, how will he survive as he's fighting the three other champions of the Megans? But the Batons, and they actually get a a couple pages in this when you take all their panels and put them together of them just slowly dying one by one until you finally, with the Baden's story, Godzilla wins. And the remaining Baden on the moon, he has a tear in his eye as he dies. But his people will know on on their home world. And and the Badens, or, or the Megans, I should say, then they've decided that they're going to stop the war. But how do we get there? How does Godzilla win? And is it just going to be he fights and starts losing and losing and losing, and then he tries harder and he wins? And, and there is something to that here. But this does what I like in a Godzilla story. The humans get involved and in this case, it's directly. He's fighting these three monsters. He can't win against the three of them because he'll f- focus on one and the other two will attack. And so Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe Jones each get into a flying machine and distract two of the creatures while Godzilla then is able to womp on the third one. And there's no doubt that Gabe... Dum Dum and Godzilla are going to come out of this just fine. But it's kind of cool. And the humans are involved. The humans are active. The humans are doing stuff. And they go, they jump into the battle, and it allows Godzilla the opportunity to win. And I like it. I do. I like it. Um, so Godzilla fighting these two different these these three different aliens they all look very very different. The one that's left is the one that looks like a giant Venus flytrap or a monster mutant Mare McCheese uh, or something like that. But it has this huge mouth, crazy huge mouth. Catches Dum Dum Dugan's flying ship, starts to eat it, and decides instead of eating it, he's going to throw it at Godzilla the way a burglar would throw his gun at Superman after he's shot all the bullets. Do you ever notice that Superman always ducked when they did that? Because the bullets weren't real, but the gun was when they're throwing it at, at George Reed. Anyway, uh, he throws Dum Dum Dugan's ship at Godzilla. Godzilla catches it and then gently sets it down on the ground. And just like in human fly with our human fly issue number 13 that we just covered where the um, the TV station manager realizes maybe Human Fly isn't such a bad guy after all. We get the turn from Dum Dum Dugan. Maybe Godzilla isn't such a bad monster after all. Now this gets gruesome because this creature also has the spinning tail that's like a helicopter blade. And this spinning tail that's like a helicopter blade was used on Red Ronin. It's what took Red Ronin's head right off. And it goes to use it against Godzilla. And, you know, I I don't have to see, in a Godzilla story, I don't have to see sophisticated character development and change. 
but this was one of those things where this monster Godzilla is getting attacked. This giant Venus flytrap thing is biting on Godzilla's whole back. And it's kind of, wow, okay, crazy. Godzilla's able to pull him off. And there's a voice from the Megans that's telling the creatures what to do. And it tells the creature to use its blades on Godzilla and take Godzilla's head off. And this is one time where overdone and overwrought narration actually is kind of fun. It says, what goes through the mind of a Leviathan? Does Godzilla now see an image of Red Ronin's earlier decapitation? And if so, does he connect it with his own immediate danger? And that's as the creature is approaching. The next panel, Godzilla grabs the creature from beneath and it says, apparently, and then (laughs) he takes the tail that's still spinning and pushes it into the neck of the creature and decapitates the beast. The beast's head gets cut clean off. Now, this is a book that is covered by the Comics Code Authority, but apparently it's a creature, it's a monster, so it's okay uh, to show. And it's it's not totally gruesome, but between those monsters, or not the monsters, between the aliens suffocating, and then Godzilla kills all three of those mega beasts and yeah this is still a uh, authorized book sold with by marvel with the the stamp for the comics code authority that it's okay it's okay by them even with all that violence so the aliens decide they're not going to be at war anymore and the and Dum Dum Dugan, I think he's decided he's not going to be at war anymore. He gets yelled at by the soldier who says, you're letting the monster get away. And Dum Dum Dugan says, monster? What monster? I don't see any monster. Gabe Jones is proud of his friend, pats him on the back gently as Godzilla marches off into the sunset. We're in Salt Lake City here, but we're going to the uh, to a dude ranch or something because it says next issue... There's this bunch of cowboys, see, and they're they got enough trouble with rustlers, right? So what do you think happens when Godzilla decides to take a roam on the range? Find out in 30 days. And, yeah, so that rounds off this trilogy of monster fighting mayhem. Uh, Rob Takaguchi is out. He is unconscious. His sister is concerned. And Red Ronin's head is lying on the ground, and I don't know what's going to happen with Red Ronin. I know this isn't the end of Red Ronin, but I'm not sure what happens to him next. Um, Godzilla is able to roam freely wherever he's going to go next. I don't know how long that's going to last, but uh, we've actually got in these three issues some character development, some character motivation, some character movement. We have giant monster action, and so... Thumbs up. Recommend this trilogy of issues, this story arc. This has been a fun, fun read for me, these these Godzilla stories. And honestly, all of the Star Wars comic stuff that I'm reading here, it's been just fun, fun stuff. And that's why I want to continue doing so, because it's fun. This is a 
taking a break from all my worries, so to speak, where I can just for a few minutes just enjoy a, a mindless uh, action or even, I guess, you know, this wasn't so mindless. Now, Dum Dum has earned this moment, whereas in Human Fly, the turn from that bad guy because he got rescued by Human Fly isn't exactly earned. I mean, he's basically a mustache twirling. Uh, he's not a mustache twirling evil bad guy, but he's a mustache twirling um, corporate bureaucratic goon type. Of guy. I don't know what what I would call him, but um, here, Dum Dum, he. He's coming along to to Gabe Jones' point of view. Now, I don't agree with what he's turning around to do. I don't agree because, you know, Godzilla is still really dangerous, and he may have saved Salt Lake City, but he is also destroying cities. And, yeah, Gabe and Dum Dum now are, you know, they're, they're kind of on that, you know, monsters are people too kind of kick and uh, I'm just not there with you guys sorry I'm just not there so next up we have uh, for the next segment of Marvel's Cosmic Comics we're going to have uh, actually it's, it's it's John Carter Warlord of Mars we're, we're there issue number 16 I mean there is this is a lean month it's not a bad thing it just is it is what it is This issue is the beginning of a new a new storyline, The Master Assassin of Mars. I'm not sure how many issues this will last, but this is chapter one, so there's pretty clearly to me there's going to be at least one more. I'm guessing probably more. This is also the first issue, uh, not by Marv Wolfman, but by Chris Claremont instead. And Chris Claremont is a strong writer. I am curious how well... His run on John Carter, Warlord of Mars, is going to hold up compared to Marv Wolfman. Marv Wolfman made this book for me. Uh, he, honestly, this this series, the success of this series is because of Marv Wolfman. I have enjoyed his stories. I have enjoyed the the rawness. I have enjoyed the pulpiness. I have enjoyed the the just the the exciting adventure that he has created it's it's been a lot of fun we are now outside of that we are now into chris chris claremont and i don't know what that's going to be like we are going to find out chris claremont best known for his his work on on x-men and then as he was working on x-men he was also working on a number of other titles uh, that he then brought together with the X-Men and crossovers and stuff like that, making the X-Men run even more exciting and more um, epic, I guess. This is before that. This is 1978. This is, uh, you know, September is the cover date, 1978. It was on shelves July 4th of 1978. And this this particular issue... Um, I don't know how early in his career this would have come out, but yeah, here we are, and it's it's new, it's different. I, I'm feeling it, I, honestly. Reading this, 
I'm I'm feeling it. It does not feel like what I enjoyed. It felt like it is trying to be Marv Wolfman, and you know, trying to be Edgar Rice Burroughs is trying to do what Marv Wolfman did with the previous fifteen issues, but at the same time, it just feels it just feels different. And part of that is because it's the same uh, things happen in this that just happen a lot already. Uh, the quick rundown of the plot: there's an assassination. Uh, John Carter drinks poison from a, a a cup, and he is declared dead. And Dejah Thoris and a whole bunch of other people go after the assassin. It's one of uh, Dejah Thoris's attendants, and this attendant, this woman, is a master swordsman, and she's able to kill three of the soldiers who are after her. She uh, fights Dejah Thoris to a stalemate. And then when other people come, this this woman just throws herself out the window to her death. And then John Carter gets a, a funeral procession. And uh, after the funeral procession, he's put in his tomb. And a flying ship leaves the city. And honestly, we know who it is because on the previous page, Days of Thoris declared that he would be avenged. John Carter would be avenged. She is, she looks fierce. She looks determined. She, Ernie Colon, I mean, he, he, they, well, Ernie Colon, I should say, and Rudy uh, Nebras um, make her look like she is just, she is on the warpath. Look out. You do not want to get in this woman's way. And this is what attracted John Carter to her in the first place. She is a warrior woman and a match for him, a perfect match for him. And as you remember, everything he does, he does for her. Well, it's similar for her. And so she is going to go. She leaves in that flying ship. And in in doing so, they're afraid that it's a spy. People see it leave. So they come to check on John Carter's tomb. And while they're in there... Turns out he ain't dead. Uh, his human physiology has allowed him to fight off the poison. So then he leaves as well. He leaves to go after Days of Thoris, and he finds her. Uh, but they are in a place that's dangerous, and as as they're traveling along, now they're both looking for this where this assassin came from, and. Uh, they end up in these terrible winds that force their ship down. And as they are now not unconscious, but they're, they're wounded, they're hurt. They're both, they both fall out of it. And then, um, they're surrounded by these creatures that we can't see very well. And it's to be continued, but it's all stuff. I've, I feel like I've seen before. I feel like I've seen, well, just last issue, John Carter almost died and had someone have there's an assassination attempt on his life uh we've had them split up before trying to avenge because they thought the other one was dead and we we've had a lot of these things happen before now there is the mystery of who the assassin is and then there's the mystery of or not who the assassin is but um who's behind the assassin and then there's the mystery of what are these creatures that are coming to get them but 
I'm just, you know, yeah, it, it's like, it's like this is the, the, the this is, this is the, the man that mom has decided to date after, you know, dad has died or something like that. And I, I'm supposed to accept Chris Claremont as, you know, my caretaker here. I'm supposed to accept him not as my father, but as a man who loves my mother. And it's just, uh, it's going to take me a few issues to see if I'm actually going to be able to get into it. But then there's also, there's something about the artwork that, and I think it's the inks. It might be the printing, honestly, but there's some there's a muddiness to the artwork that just doesn't draw me in as as much as some of those earlier issues did. And uh, you know, I wanted to go check and see. Okay, so do we have? Is it a different art team? Um, but yeah, last issue inked by Rudy Nebrez and Walt Simonson did the artwork, and then the issue before that it was Carmen Infantino, Rudy Nebrez. And then before that, it was I'm not going to go back much further than this, but Carmen Infantino. And so Ernie Colon, I know I've seen his work here. I'm pretty sure I've seen his work on on John Carter, but maybe I'll look in the, the table of contents. But honestly, there's there's something wrong with the artwork here. It just does not it does not fit. Ernie Colon, issue sixteen seventeen. So. No, I, I haven't seen his artwork here, and it just it just doesn't it just doesn't look as nice. It's not as clean. It's not as crisp, and and it's not as muscular. I mean, he's drawing muscles, maybe even drawing more muscles or stronger muscles than these other artists. When I say it's not as muscular, I mean it just doesn't give me a sense of motion and strength in the same way that the other the others the other artists have done. Um, and, and there's a simplicity to some of the, uh, costuming designs that, that don't feel like it, it just doesn't feel like it fits into what we've had before. So maybe I'm just being too harsh. Uh, it, this isn't going to make me put it down. I'm curious about what's going to happen next. This is just the first chapter. And so, you know, you, this is all set up and, and this happens where you'll, the first chapter is all set up. And so you get to the second chapter, all that setup stuff is done. And you can get into the actual story. The first chapter isn't any worse than the second chapter. It just had a different job to do than the first chapter or rather than, than the second chapter. And the second chapter, you wouldn't enjoy as much. I mean, if you do like the second chapter, you wouldn't enjoy it as much without the set, the setup that the first chapter gave. So I don't know. I, it just, it just is not, not capturing me the way Marv Wolfman's issues did and that i i feel like i'm being unfair i feel like i'm being unfair um yeah i'm i'm just gonna have to continue and, and see what happens because I, mean, I don't think it's as different as i'm feeling like it is i don't i don't know we will find out we will find out in the next issue because here's what we have for the setup now is there's an assassin's guild or something like that that's out there that wants John Carter dead. Why? I don't know. It's a mystery. We'll find out. Hopefully. We should find out. Uh, John Carter and Dejah Thoris are out alone. Alone together. But they've got menacing people coming after them. How do they fit into this story? I don't know. We'll find out. 
Uh, why do they want John Carter dead? We'll find out. Uh, who was this mysterious lady? Who was her master swordsman uh, trainer? We'll find out. It's all set up. It's all set up, and I, I'm i being unfair. I'm being unfair. But I can't help feeling what I'm feeling, so uh, I don't know. <laughs> but this ends the regular coverage of the regular issues in the Marvel licensed sci-fi uh, run. And, and so from here, in the next segment, I will be reading from Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur and also taking a look at the ads and, and the editorial copy that would be found in the individual issues of this month's round of books. And that's in a little segment I like to call Ben's Bullpen Bulletin because alliteration. So the purpose of Ben's Bullpen Bulletin is to basically cap off every month. And the way I do this is by, first of all, um, looking at books that are related to things that might be discussed in Marvel Cosmic Comics but aren't necessarily a part of um, – well, aren't necessarily a part of any license licensing deals. But also maybe they are part of a licensing deal but I, you know, I don't feel like I can talk about it for 15 to, to 20 minutes um, or – um, it's just some other little random thing that I found that has to do with this month that I found to be interesting. And so part of that is Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur. And those are related to way back when, when this podcast started, I started with one of the first things before we even got into Star Wars was 2001, the great big oversized movie adaptation by Jack Kirby. And that's why Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur are both being discussed in Ben's Bullpen Bulletin because they both, to me, feel like spiritual successors to that 2001 book. Because that 2001 book dealt with, well, first of all, that's where Machine Man was created. The first appearance of Machine Man was in 2001, A Space Odyssey by Jack Kirby. That's where he created the character. He created the character to come in contact with the space baby and the monolith and um, in the original series with 2001, basically anything primitive or futuristic that came into contact with them, that meant it was another step in their development. And that was part of what made Machine Man be set apart from the other machines that were part of the same you know, model uh, that he was built, built from. Um, that book got canceled at issue number 10, and now we are here at issue number 6 of the book that is just Machine Man, which was probably a, a good thing to do considering they didn't have to pay any licensing fees for calling it 2001 because they, when they were called it 2001, it was, they were licensing the book. So here Jack Kirby gets to kind of take those Machine Man ideas that he wanted to run with and just go ahead and run with them. Uh, Devil Dinosaur is another spiritual successor because of the way Jack Kirby spent time looking at these kind of warlike primitive cultures that were just you know on the cusp of say developing uh, metalwork or things like that. And so here with Devil Dinosaur, he has this cave boy and his dog. Well, the cave boy is is Moon Boy, and his dog is a 
T-Rex that has been burned and has been turned red and is called Devil Dinosaur. And they both have this valley that they live in and they've been just, you know, they travel a valley and, and deal with things that, that pop up. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the next issues of that. And then we'll take a look in the book itself and take a look at some of the ads and stuff that they had in there. And then the other thing we'll do is we will take a look at uh, what else was on this, the spinner rack from Marvel. And if there's anything interesting from other companies as well, like when, you know, I, I believe gold key is still publishing star Trek, which I, I did not realize they took that license for that long. The movie's coming soon. The motion picture, I should say. And that means Star Trek comics are coming soon. And I'm kind of excited about that. So let's get started um, by taking a look at Machine Man. And Machine Man's issue today, you know, it it wasn't the greatest. It wasn't the worst. It was basically a great big fight scene between him and a robot that is called upon a fleet of more robots to come and invade the Earth. And... <laughs> It, well, let's get into this here, because the whole idea behind Machine Man is that Machine Man is fighting to protect people who don't understand him, or he is fighting to get away from people who are trying to kill him. And he's also, while he's doing all this, going through existential crises, 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 he's having an existential crisis repeatedly. How's that? <laughs> That's the way to to avoid the the plural noun there. And he so he's being chased by the army and they even like they they stop a fight with him and and the bad guy earlier and take the bad guy's side. Now the bad guy has called upon a fleet of more of those bad guys. And so throughout the whole thing, you know, it does play up it plays up the race angle where machine man is basically um, I mean, they really play it up. Uh, he gets in a taxi cab with an African-American driver and he gets some good advice from the guy, but they really, you know, by doing so, um, they, they really play up the idea that machine man's rejection by humanity is basically, it's a sci-fi metaphorical racism. And, you know, on the one hand, it works because it gets me thinking about those things. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought of them, you know, sitting down to read this comic. I wasn't planning to, to think about those things. Now, there is a lot going on in society right now that we are thinking about these things and, and possibly more, possibly less than we have in the past. But there are plenty of things going on in the United States and, and around the world to get us thinking about race uh, and and racism and and all the stuff that goes along with that. Um, but then you come across, you know, a, a story that gets you thinking about it and maybe in a different way or just gets you thinking about it at a time when you weren't expecting to think about it. And that's what this did. Um, Jack Kirby, he's not one for subtlety. Let's put it that way. And that's a good thing when it comes down to the art and the fights and the stuff like that. Um but the whole idea is, you know, Machine Man doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to protect. He doesn't care about protecting the world from the fleet that's coming. And in the end, and I'm going to go ahead and spoil the end. You know, if you're going to read Machine Man, you've, you've had your uh, 40 years <laughs> to, to do so. But um, 
they defeat the alien fleet by basically turning 10-4, the bad guy, into a bomb. And they send him up to where the fleet is going to be. And the fleet is approaching the Earth. And then he blows up. And it destroys the fleet. It's too late. you know. And, and so across the Earth, they can see the blowing up ships in the sky. He's just saved the world. But then it says, next, will the people save the hero who saved the people? It's America versus Machine Man. And, you know, it, Ray Bradbury does this. Where you can tell when Ray Bradbury writes a story where he's dealing with things like this, the social issues that are going on, you can tell that some of the stories that he's writing are him as a middle class or upper class. I'm not sure how rich he was, a white person dealing with seeing people who are not his race and not his uh, economic class but trying to work through like what can he do or trying to work through just what is what should society be doing jack kirby's doing the same thing but i'll just say this jack kirby is no ray bradbury he's just not now jack kirby has a much more um energetic and powerful art style than ray bradbury but uh yeah ray bradbury's got jack kirby beat when it comes down to um subtle and sophisticated and thoughtful storytelling Jack Kirby, it's muscular artwork, not subtle with theme, but he's doing it, you know, and and, and that's the thing is you got to appreciate what he's doing and how he's doing it. Uh, I just wish some of the 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 racial correlations, the one to one between this white skinned robot um, dealing with, you know, being rejected by society i it just doesn't feel right in some ways to me and and it's from a different time though i mean this is from a time you know in the late 70s and they have some of the same problems especially on the racial front there's a lot of the same problems going on now that were then you know, i hope we're getting better and i'm sure that we are in many ways but um yeah it's just it's not subtle enough let's put it that way and uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, this book, by the way, was edited, written and drawn by Jack Kirby. I mean, he is th- there's no um, it feels to me like there's no uh, oversight. And maybe that's the problem is and I've talked about this before, but maybe if there was other people with their hands in the pot who were maybe helping to guide him along, maybe it would have been better, more more subtle or or whatever. But um it's not. Now, there is it's edited, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby. It says embellished by Mike Royer. I wonder if he was inking this. I'm not sure. This feels like, from what I know, from what I've seen, and I'm not a Jack Kirby expert by any stretch of the imagination. This is my first real time to dig and dive in deep to the Jack Kirby-ness of a Jack Kirby comic. Um, but it feels like what I've seen before. And so if uh, Mike Royer is inking this, then he's doing a great job. Uh, it was colored by R. Goldberg. And then it said, it does say Jim Shooter is consulting editor uh, for this issue number six, which is called Quick Trick. Not Quick Kick for you G.I. Joe fans, but Quick Trick. Now, Devil Dinosaur issue number six. That is a continuation of the... Uh, story from before where aliens came and devil dinosaur uh well, moon boy was captured by them devil dinosaur has made two new friends and then he has caused an giant ant hill to be destroyed and sent the ants 
scurrying towards the aliens. Now, I've talked a little bit about how there is some biblical uh, allusions and stuff going on in here. And this one goes even further because this one has, I mean, the title of this story is just simply called Eve. Now it's E-E-V, but you say E-E-V the same way, the same way you say E-V-E. It's Eve. And then you look at the cover and it's Devil Dinosaur number six. And you've got this man cave guy and this woman cave lady. Uh, and it says, driven by fear and fire, man, woman and monster flee the valley, the fall. OK, I mean, can you get can you get more heavy handed in your biblical allusions than to call your comic, you know, to, to call it out on the front, uh, the fall, and then to name one of the characters Eve. Now, the character they've named is this just brutal, tough lady. I mean, she is she is awesome, and she's fighting the ants along with um, the two uh, the two older men. Um, now, one is really old. He is all white. Got a white beard, covered in white fur. The other one is covered in dark fur. Uh, Eve, now I'm reading a reprint, so I do not know what this looked like in the original artwork. She has a uh, green tone to her fur, and I don't know if that's just to differentiate her from the other ones, or if it's meant to be like more gray, and it's just kind of coming out as a green. Uh, I'm not sure. But here she is, you know, and they're they're fighting the ants that they have sent out against the aliens. The, the ants are actually going to the alien ship where Moon Boy is. Uh, they're getting ready to do some experimentation. I don't know if they're going to do any probing. I, I hope they're not, but they're they're definitely going to do some some work on him. But the ants come through and the ants get into everything as they do. They get all over everyone, which boy. This is in some ways a little bit of a nightmare to me. Not quite, but a little bit. I remember going out to the bus stop as a, as a little Benji Avery, a little four-year-old, uh, getting ready for, you know, waiting at the, for the, the bus stop for, for my kindergarten bus, you know, that little tiny bus that would take me to half-day kindergarten. And an ant started walking up my leg, and I freaked out. I, it's a very, very vivid memory. And so as I'm reading the comic and I'm seeing these ants all over the aliens, and I'm just like, oh, man, just one freaked me out. But, you know, these are aliens and great big giant cool exoskeleton now moon boy does escape the alien ship thing blows up and is destroyed but he can't find devil dinosaur and the reason he can't find devil dinosaur is because devil dinosaur when the base blew up moon boy didn't come out immediately and so devil dinosaur slinked off he was sad and so uh now we have three sets of people. Well, not really sets because one of them is, is Moon Boy, who's just waiting in the rain. He's, he's found a cave where he's keeping warm. But um, then you have Eve. You have Stonehand, who is the, the younger male of, of the two. And then you have the old one. And they are going along their way. And then Devil Dinosaur is off doing something. Now... Here's where we're getting even more into that kind of sci-fi Adam and Eve kind of thing. And that's where we have this uh, prime computer thing. And it I was trying to remember, like, as I'm reading along, why did I think that this reminds me of a tree? Like the tree in the Garden of Eden. Why? As I'm reading it, it doesn't seem like it should until I got to the end. Now, first of all, Stonehand and uh, Eve... And, and the old guy, they're headed in the direction toward this t 
tower, this computer tower, basically, a giant computer tower. And it's talking and stuff, and it orders them to come closer. And again, I'm thinking, well, why am I thinking in my mind that this is like the, you know, the tree in the Garden of Eden, which is where you know Adam and Eve eat the fruit, which wasn't an apple, but it was a, you know, the, the one forbidden fruit. And then I get to the end, and I realize why, because it says coming soon or coming danger, danger from the demon tree. <laughs> and so they're being called to this this me- mechanical. Uh, computerized tower that is called the demon tree. And so I'm pretty sure in the next issue, there is going to be even more, uh, you know, of this kind of pseudo biblical uh, allegory kind of thing going on here. And so we'll see, we'll see. Um, but that's, that's devil dinosaur and machine man this month. And you know what? I, I enjoy them both, but um, I enjoy devil dinosaur cause it has the opportunity to get more gonzo, let's put it. Uh, Machine Man has Jack Kirby trying to say something sociologically, let's say. Devil Dinosaur might be getting into some of that. I mean, when you start using things like this, where you're you're making these allusions to things from the Bible, you're usually going to be doing so because you're making some form of statement about them, either this is a good thing or this is a bad thing, or this is a bad thing that's being used for good, or it's a good thing that's being used for... I mean, you're using those ideas and you're you're referencing those things because you're making commentary on it. I mean, really, when you reference anything, you're kind of making commentary on it. Now, sometimes you might just be referencing it and your commentary is, hey, we all know this thing and now I'm referencing it, so look at me! <laughs> so, um, I think Kirby is trying to say something with Devil Dinosaur, but with Devil Dinosaur, he is also letting himself just kind of cut loose, draw dinosaurs, draw great big fiery action scenes and stuff like that. And with Machine Man, he's doing this. I mean, he's not he he's not discontinuing the Jack Kirbyness of being Jack Kirby, but he is kind of pulling back on some of the weird, wild Gonzo stuff so that he can get into this character who is just really, you know, just ambivalent about life. You know, he doesn't, maybe he cares, maybe he doesn't. He doesn't know if he should care. And he gets kind of pushed into it by outer forces, but he's also got these other outer forces that are kind of trying to hold him back. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's X-Men, you know, it's, it's uh, Howard the Duck trapped in a world he never made, you know, that kind of thing. It's not unusual, um, and I'm sure that there's even things specifically using robot characters in a situation like this, but, um, the machine man stuff just isn't getting me as pumped up as well as 2001 did. And as devil dinosaur is. So, um, looking at the, uh, the books themselves, the, the issues with, with the, um, some of the ads and stuff, there is a lot of the, um, well, I, I call them, uh, flea market pages a, a lot of those there's a uh ad for um the bad news bears go to japan which i never got to watch the bad news bears i still haven't watched the bad news bears and but back when i was a kid it was because there's language or something I, I don't remember uh i just remember hearing that there was just lots of bad language in there so we weren't going to see it uh and then there's the, the ad for grit and the ad for um prizes or cash from olympic sales club so those two sales things, uh, more Slim Jim, but this time it's 
drawn by the same artist who was doing the Dracula thing and the Wolfman thing, but it's two kids wearing, you know, what remind me of like a summer camp shirt, but, um, and they're there with their dog, you know, and it's an ad where basically you can get that shirt, uh, Slim Jim Meat Snacks shirt. Like, that's what it says, Slim Jim Meat Snacks. Uh, everybody loves Icy, including this uh, bear who is also trying to get you to buy Icy uh, merchandise, including a T-shirt. So there's, there's two T-shirts from this magazine alone. An ad to be a skilled locksmith. There's two ads for um, strong arms or you know, mu muscle building um the one literally says strong arms that's the, the primary thing you see there make all the difference and then free booklet see your muscles grow day by day so there's there's those two things that classic really cliche uh of comic book ads there's a daisy 840 ad for a daisy rifle I, a bb gum i've never had a bb gun but i always wanted one uh then there's more t-shirts. This time you can get uh, Amazing Spider-Man, Thor, Captain America, Howard the Duck, Hulk, Fantastic Four, Red Sonja, <laughs> Conan, and Silver Surfer. But there is an asterisk next, next to the Red Sonja t-shirt. And it says, sorry kids, adult sizes only on Red Sonja. She's just too hot to handle. And you know, I'm okay with not selling kid sizes of the shirt with the bikini clad um barbarian woman um i just think it's kind of funny that it's that's in there and then if we get into the um the actual bullpen bulletin let me find that it is it's uh focusing on the beatles story for marvel super special number four which i'm not going to uh cover and and the truth of it is um it just it's a pricing thing. I can't afford it. Don't uh, it's not that important to me to to really try and and pull in. Um there's also uh the Mar Mighty Marvel Superheroes Fun Book number 3 and I remember seeing those at the barber shop and they would have a couple comics and that would be one of them and I pick it up and all the mazes were done and all the, you know, the crossword puzzles or whatever but um yeah <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's what's going on. I mean, it's there's not not a lot of totally new stuff, not a lot of real exciting stuff. There's a nice full page ad for the X Men that's coming. Uh, they're on sale monthly now, or again, I should say, with Chris Claremont and and John Byrne. Um, another <laughs> advertisement for getting a subscription to Pizzazz, which still looking at it. it I don't understand what they're trying to do with pizzazz. They're trying to sell it as being energetic and funny and stuff, but their ads are just horrible. This one just has in large letters, whew. And then it says, putting out a super issue of pizzazz every month is hard work. The least you can do is subscribe. Okay, that's a little bit funny. But to me, as a kid, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to think that that's funny enough to make me say, oh, I bet that magazine is funny. Then in small print, that's right. Creating a zingy magazine that's fun, dramatic, and exciting is far from easy. Doing it month after month is even tougher. We need all the encouragement we can get. It's chock full of games, comics, sports, superheroes, and humor. <laughs> we need all the encouragement we can get. That says to me, okay, it was edgy up there. The least you can do is subscribe. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, subscribe to my magazine or I'll shoot this puppy. But then, oh, we need all the encouragement we can get. Oh, we're sad sacks. I mean, just... 
I don't get it. Now, they have these tiny black and white pictures of the covers, and you can kind of make out that one has R2-D2 and C-3PO on the cover. That's what should be. <laughs> Put it, make us see the big picture of this, you know, there's a skateboarder on one, but I can't see anything other than this vague shape. There's someone who looks like he's got a leopard. That, no, that's actually a leopard. I don't know what that is. And this other one, you can't even tell. It's just a bunch of like lines and there's a star in there and maybe some people. Guys, guys, if if I could use this time machine to actually change time, when I go back in time to pick up these books, uh, if I could use this time machine to do so and actually maybe help you with, with some of your vision here for what you're doing with your publications, I, I would. I, I can't. But um, they really need to revamp and someone, yeah, it's that, well, it's the, the Jerry Seinfeld, who is a marketing genius who thought of this one. I mean, really, they need a marketing genius. So um, when I went back in time to go and pick up these, these comics, there were other books on the shelf, of course, uh, at the drug shop that I went to to, to buy these comics. Because uh, I went back in time, of course, to July, or not July, June of 1978. That's when these hit the stands. And looking at the, the comic book rack, um, or, you know, you at home could do what I'm, of course, not doing, which is to look at the uh, um, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, <laughs> where you can actually, you know, see so much information, so much information about um, just when comics were released, w when they were on the shelf, and and, uh, and then also um, the, the teams behind them. Uh, speaking of teams, I don't think I mentioned for, uh, for Devil Dinosaur. I better do that, but I know it was Jack Kirby, of course. Yeah, Jack Kirby ed edited, wrote, and drew, embellished by Mike Royer again, colored by Petra Goldberg, same person from, from before, and then consulting editor Jim, Sh Jim Shooter. We've got a good team going on here. Uh, anyway... Uh, looking at the shelf, some other things of interest to people who are interested in the sci-fi licensing and that kind of thing is there are still a ton of the Hanna-Barbera comics uh, being put out by Marvel. And then you also have uh, Gold Key doing Disney and I, well, I think Warner Brothers or whoever with uh, you know Bugs Bunny and Looney Tunes and that sort of thing. Um, and then you also, Gold Key is still publishing Twilight Zone. This month, they're on issue number 86 of Twilight Zone, and I'm really, really curious. It can't be as good as I would want it to be in my head. That's probably the one thing that's kept me from trying to collect old Twilight Zone comics. Um, but they also were still publishing Star Trek. They were on issue number 54. I mean, think about that. Now, the Gold Key comics, the Gold Key Star Trek comics are incredible. Uh some of them are incredible just in the way that they are so not Star Trek. And some of them just are great examples of, you know, um, late 60s and 70s uh, short sci-fi. It's it's fun. I really enjoy those those comics. Um, beyond that, uh, not not a lot. Uh, on the on the cover of Crazy, you have uh, Kiss and then there's a uh, famous Monsters of Filmland number 146 that had uh the cover was Jaws versus Ape. And this cover, man, um, it's I, I, I think it's referencing maybe uh, King Kong. I'm not sure, but it has a big old shark getting ready to eat a lady uh, who's in the water. 
And then you have this ape on its tail, just holding it like it's trying to hold it back and, and fight the thing. And I mentioned Star Wars, of course, on the cover as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, this is the, I mean, the other things of interest there. There's one thing of interest to in me was that there's service number four came out. And I really think that that's uh, just interesting because that's when service was starting. I mean, that's a long, long time ago. And you finished it with uh uh, 300 issues, 300 issues. So that's that for this month. And, uh, yeah, I came back. So I go podcast about it. I'm going to go back now to, uh, July, 1978 and come back with, uh, well, the handful of books with a cover date of October, 1978. And I talked about this when I did October, 1977, I always loved getting comics that had October as the cover date because that was my birthday month and it just even now when i pick up a comic if it says october on it i think oh october especially if there's a uh, something that i think we might have one where it's october and then it's issue 16 that's my birthday october 16 i you know it's little things like that but i'm sure i'm not the only one i'm sure i'm not the only one i hope i'm not the only one <laughs> so hey i just want to say now uh thank you for listening and um I'm going to play a promo at the end. Normally the promos I play are podcasts that I listen to. This one is a podcast I listen to, but it's also a podcast that I've been a part of. And so I do want you to I hope you would check it out. It should be possibly relevant to your interests. So again, thank you for listening. And until next time, Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. I'm Chad Bokelman. You may know me from the Green Lantern podcast, The Lantern Cast. You also may know me from making promises across the comics podcasting community concerning a new project I've been working on. An Action Comics Weekly podcast, to be precise. Well, it's time to deliver on that promise. The Action Comics Weekly podcast is a bi-weekly podcast featuring myself and a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts discussing the characters appearing in the comic series of the same name from the late 1980s. 
So, starting this summer, join me and Mark Marble as we discuss Green Lantern. For all the people that want to give Hal when he was Parallax a lot of shit about the way he acted, <laughs> Star Sapphire has nothing on Hal for being like pushed over the borderline because she's just completely friggin' nuts. Jay Jones as we discuss Wild Dog. He straight up, like you said, he, he murders these people. And that's, that's not my DC Comics. That's not superheroic at all. Batman wouldn't have killed anybody. But the story, this story is, it's, it's not bad. It's not great. It's, it's like the character himself. It's like, he's just, it's just there. It just exists. Ben Avery, as we discuss The Secret Six. So when I read this alone, as I was reading through this, this issue, I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> I, I told Chad I'd do this, but I don't know if I'm going to like this. <laughs> I, I do end up liking Secret Six more. This is the introduction, and without this, you know, I probably wouldn't like, you know, the, the second chapter as much. Doug Zavisha, as we discuss Dead Man. <laughs> well, it's it's a kind of a waffly Dead Man story. It wants to be a Dead Man story. It starts to be a Dead Man story. It forgets it's a Dead Man story, and then it comes back to being one, um, all in the span of eight pages. Alan Middleton, as we discuss Blackhawk that there's sort of this era of Blackhawk where he was sort of dissolute and sort of couldn't get civilian life together. Mm -hmm. And I think this story is either beginning that trend or at least tapping into that, tapping into that fertile story. And Michael Bailey, as we discuss Superman. There is really no way to tie this two-page strip into that. So it really exists in its own world at a time where the Superman books were becoming more and more linked. So it's this oddity on a number of levels. And many other characters featuring many more guest hosts along the way. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast. Coming soon, summer 2016. Find us on Facebook for more details.